My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Mary Shortle, Jim Din, and Sarah Langer. According to today's guests, there isn't a lot of precedent, at least in recent decades, for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador rising up in significant numbers to oppose the policies of their provincial government. But late last year, a provincial conservative government that had been in power since 2003 was decisively defeated and a large liberal majority swept into office. Though their platform did not call for cuts and privatization, that is, for austerity, the introduction of their first budget in the context of a major economic downturn has made decisive moves in that direction, with the possibility of even more drastic cuts in a second budget slated for late 2016. The cut that made the news most widely outside of Newfoundland would have resulted in the closure of many, many public libraries, and that has, at least for the moment, been rescinded. But as today's guests discuss, the vast majority of cuts are still happening, and people's lives are being impacted in a wide range of ways. Mary Shortle is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor. Jim Din is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association, and Sarah Langer is the treasurer of the Newfoundland and Labrador branch of the Canadian Federation of Students. All three are involved in Common Front NL, a broad coalition of unions, student groups, women's organizations, social justice groups, faith groups, and other sorts of community organizations, as well as concerned individuals, that have come together to take united action in response to the provincial austerity budget. While some of the component member organizations have already been mobilizing people into the streets, the Common Front as a whole has so far focused on using round tables and town halls to talk with Newfoundlanders in a way that they say the government has not. They're talking with people about their lives, about the impacts of austerity, and about developing a more hopeful vision for a fair and prosperous Newfoundland that makes sure everyone's needs are met. Though actual reversals of proposed austerity measures have so far been minimal, the engagement by ordinary Newfoundlanders is unprecedented, not just via the Common Front, but in lots of other independent initiatives as well, and the popularity of the ruling Liberals has tanked, despite being in office for significantly less than a year. Though they see a long road ahead, the Common Front also sees a real possibility for turning back the austerity agenda in Newfoundland and Labrador. Shortle, Din, and Langer talk with me about the impacts that austerity is having and will increasingly have on people in Newfoundland and Labrador, and about what the Common Front NL and its member organizations are doing to fight back. We spoke by Skype to phone from various locations in Newfoundland. I'm Mary Shortle, and I'm the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor, which is the political bargaining arm of the labor movement. We represent about 25 affiliated unions, about 65,000 members, and we're part of the founding members of the Common Front Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a coalition which was put together to address 
our vision of what a strong economy looks like for Newfoundland and Labrador and to have a measured response to government and to engage the public and citizens and union members and coalition members and media in a discussion about what that should look like. And part of that is also responding to the austerity budget. I'm Tim Dinn, president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. We're one of the original members or founding members, part of the coalition partners, more or less to offer an alternative approach to budgets and especially in light of this budget. I'm Sarah Langer. I'm the treasurer for the Canadian Federation of Students, Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm also a student at Grenfell Campus Memorial University, where I'm the vice president external of the Grenfell Campus Student Union. The Canadian Federation of Students in Newfoundland and Labrador represents all public post-secondary students in the province. That includes all students at Memorial University and all students at the College of the North Atlantic. And we're also a part of Common Front NL. The government was elected on November 30th. They are a liberal government who ran on a campaign of doing things differently than the conservative government which were in power prior to that. And they ran on a campaign that there would be no cuts to the public sector. They ran on a campaign that said they would not privatize public services, that they were going to fix the mess that the conservative government before them had done. Basically, very similar to the federal liberal campaign. They made a lot of promises about no job losses and being transparent and open. And they won a huge majority. And they had been in opposition, but a small opposition prior to this. And they were elected with a very strong popular vote. Historically, in this province, liberal governments are more right-wing than the conservative governments before. It's a strange dynamic here. And so some of us weren't all that surprised when very shortly after taking office, a lot of the decisions that they made, and particularly the budgetary decisions around austerity and their discussions around opening the doors to privatizations and other issues, were very contrary to what they had promised in campaigning. So a lot of the citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador are feeling very deceived by and very let down by this government. And that's why, in our opinion, the fight back has been so important and it's been so persistent. It's the first time probably in our recent history that people have expressed their displeasure around a government decision like this for such a long time. There's been no let up in the pushback. It's been loud. It's been vocal. It's not just been led by this coalition, but there's citizens groups and individuals who are rising up every day to talk about this. And so it's very significant in a way, and it's really you know, shown itself out in the popularity of this party. Government understands this, but they continue to defend their decisions. They have backtracked on some. I mean, they were closing 54 libraries. They were shutting down provincial courts and federal courts in areas so remote from the capital of St. John's that there was no way for people who need those services to get those services. They're making, you know, across-the-board cuts to public services. They're entertaining the whole issue of privatization, which they campaigned against and they're calling it alternate service delivery, or they're disguising it in other ways, but the intent is there. And they're not talking about the real issues. They're not talking about unemployment, which is already at an all-time high. And in the government's own budget documents, they predict that within five years, because of this austerity budget, because they're slowing down economic growth so badly, that within five years, the unemployment rate will be around 20% in this province, 
they've stepped back from some of the decisions they make, but we're still not hearing anything about how we stimulate this economy. We also have a big public service here. All their collective agreements expired since the end of March. So those public sector unions are getting ready for a real tough set of bargaining. So it's just um, there's no hope. There's no vision. People here are afraid to spend money. Young people are leaving. Families are leaving to access services like, you know, for mental health issues for their children because those services have been cut here. So there's a whole fear, I think, amongst the population that it's going to get worse and that hasn't been dispelled by this government. In fact, the sky is falling as far as they're concerned. Specifically for students, we're seeing that this austerity budget has been attacking our post-secondary education system, and it's really attacking our most vulnerable students. So first of all, we had an upfront needs-based grants program and eliminated provincial student loans. However, with this budget, they slashed the grants program and loans were reintroduced, which is really a step backwards just as the program was really starting to get other provinces to follow suit, and it was widely successful. We're also seeing cuts to Memorial University, which is the only publicly funded university in the province. And because of the cuts, university administration has been talking about increasing tuition in order to make up for the shortcomings of that. So these things are really affecting students. They're segregating them from higher education based on financial barriers. With increasing student debt, we're really going to see youth out-migration, just like in the 90s when tuition and student debt skyrocketed. Youth out-migration spiked and was at an all-time high. When I hear austerity, the first word is pain, but the other word is cuts, and it's interesting. In the government's renewal initiative, in the consultation phase of this, the very first question they asked was, what is it that government needs to stop doing? Now, it's very much like asking, well, how many uh, lifeboats do we need to get rid of on a ship? But we should be looking at, well, the number of passengers and the needs and that before we talk about anything. But to ask, start with the question, what do we need to cut, implies some sort of a surplus or an unnecessary number of services that we're providing. From the point of view of education, we see the effects in terms of recently with the increase in class sizes for all levels, the introduction of combined classes, which is not multigrading, but which is going to create significant impact. We've seen the closing of libraries, which they've since reversed. Well, well, that remains to see how long that stays reversed. But for us, we've been arguing for an investment in education. We're always seeing a reduction of services for children. So you look at the students, the student population, what are the supports that they need, and you put those supports in place. What we're finding, on the other hand, is very much the budgetary considerations that are looked at when it comes to providing resources. We've seen an increase in violent incidents within the school of increasing homeschooling where parents have pulled their children from school because they aren't getting the services they need. So from our point of view, it has a direct impact on the schools, on the teachers, and most importantly on our students. As we've said to the government, you haven't really solved a deficit. You've simply transferred a financial deficit now to the education system. You've turned a financial deficit into an educational deficit. And I would say that would be the same for post-secondary students and for the public service. You haven't gotten rid of the deficit. You've created another, and uh, one that's going to have long-term impact and long-term implications, and it's going to take many years to fix once the impacts are realized. The issue is that when times were really good under a previous administration, there was huge 
tax cuts given to individuals and to corporations. They operated deficit budgets for many years, even with oil being $100 a barrel. And now in an economic downturn, what the problem is is not public services, it's actually revenue. It's not spending, it's revenue. And so our discussions with government prior to the budget was about how we could address that. And we had given the provincial government a lot of options about doing that and about the importance of a strong public sector, particularly in a province like ours who needs young people to stay and to be educated here and to work here. With our aging demographic and our geography, it's an expensive province to service, but in order to maintain the services that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians depend upon and deserve, there has to be some spending in the economy. The problem is issues like unemployment, it's issues on revenue generation, but this government instead chose to cut the public sector somewhat with a lot of indication that they're going to do a whole lot more of that in another budget which is scheduled to happen in the fall. And they have not increased revenue. They have to a certain extent, but the revenue that they increased was either on the backs of middle-income earners or else they've not done it. They've made it regressive taxation or they've just not done enough increases in personal or corporate income taxes. There hasn't been any stimulus into the economy and public services like education and health care and all those other services that people depend upon have been cut back drastically through this budget or the intent is to cut them back even further in the next budget. Tell me a bit more about how the Common Front initially came together and about the work that you've been doing. There was a call put out, if I remember correctly, from the Federation and a number of interested groups about forming a coalition. We met at the Hall Inn, is what I remember, and we talked about how we were going to move forward, that it couldn't just be simply a union-led or a political party-led event, but it had to come from the grassroots. There are a number of groups there, unions, community groups, not-for-profit groups, that were starting to realize the effects of a budget such as this on the community, and there was a need to start offering an alternative point of view. So there's an element of protesting the budget, but also to offer, I guess, hope, this is part of the better way of looking at it, that we can change things by working together. The good thing about the coalition, too, is, is, you know, women's groups, anti-poverty groups, faith-based groups, municipal leaders, small businesses. It's a combination of all aspects of society together. But the good thing about it is that as a coalition, we have one direction that we're following, you know, our mandate. We've been asked, sometimes we get very curious requests from outside groups, you know, can we lead? Uh, protest on proportional representation going into the next election, for example, but that's not our mandate. And we all have our own jobs to do in our own individual organizations. And there's a lot of just individual citizens who are also part of our coalition and social justice groups, all kinds of people. But as a coalition, we've been going around the province and uh, hosting uh, town halls and roundtable discussions. So that's the more measured approach. We have some really good research. We produce some really good material, and we've been disseminating that amongst the regular citizens all over the province and inviting them to engage with us in the discussion, especially in the part of the discussion that was not present during the consultations that the provincial government had, because at no time have they ever said, well, you know, what should we be doing instead? You know, it was all like about what shall we cut and where are the inefficiencies? It wasn't about what are the services that this 
province needs and how are we going to do it, how are we going to look after our youth, how are we going to look after our most vulnerable. The other good thing about the coalition is that the individual organizations within the coalition are also protesting and pushing back in their own way. So, for an example, in the Federation of Labor, as a member of the coalition, we have this very sensible, measured approach, but that doesn't stop us from a Federation of Labor of protesting, and we held a really big, successful demonstration outside the government's house in May in response to the budget, and I think, you know, that made a difference, too. So there's all kinds of different activities happening. There's the protest. There's the measured response. There's another group of concerned citizens who've come together in their own group that join with us on lots of things, and then they do their own thing as well. The students have held huge protests and discussions around the issues around post-secondary education, and we've supported them. The St. John's Status of Women's Council had a social media day of sit-in in response to the provincial government and the impact on women, and we supported that, and our research supported that. So we're all doing all kinds of things. But the most important thing from all that is that there's no let-up. Even over the summer, we're engaging in a social media campaign, and we've been kind of following the politicians on the barbecue scene and speaking our mind there. And I had a chance to speak to our premier during the premier's meetings in the Yukon, So we've been everywhere, and we've been very vocal, and we've been very together in our position, and that, I think, will be the measure of success. There's a lot of truth to the statement that political action really works, and that, in fact, nothing works without political action, and that we have no choice. We have to be political. If there's one thing we're learning is that they're doing some of the work of creating solidarity amongst us and giving a lot of legitimacy to not just the labor movement, but to our member organizations as well. We can thank them, I guess the government, for doing some of our organizing for us. A big takeaway from this is that direct action coalitions really do work, especially with what Mary was saying about solidarity work, how if labor is doing a protest, a rally, information, students are there to support it. Labor unions were there to support us when we had our protester rally at the Board of Regents meeting when they were deciding on if they should increase tuition for the next year because of the government cuts to the operating budget of Memorial University. And we did win that. So there have been no fee increases for the next year for some students. And that was a big victory for us. And we couldn't have done it without support and solidarity from other groups in the Common Front. Given the challenges that can often be part of bringing such a breadth of kinds of groups and organizations together, what are some of the ways that the Common Front works to help that happen, to bring different groups together and to keep them together? We don't meet as a huge group as often as we did at the very beginning. We stay in touch with each other through emails and we have huge group meetings periodically. But what we've done is developed a series of working groups, and each of those is headed up by a member of the coalition. So, for example, we have a working group who are developing somewhat of an alternate budget, again, to present to government policy and a vision, I guess, a discussion document that we can engage the public with leading into this second part of the campaign and the next budget. So that's a working group that's actively working that has various members of the coalition on it. We have another working group that looks after the communication and the social media campaigns and our design and the strategy for communications going forward. 
We have a working group that does outreach so that other members who want to become part of the coalition, particularly around, we have a lot of municipalities here in Newfoundland Labrador, and rural Newfoundland Labrador is also disproportionately impacted by this current budget cut. So we're trying to engage more municipal leaders and town councillors throughout Newfoundland Labrador. So there's a working group who looks at that. There's a working group that looks at events that are happening where we may want to have a presence. And there's another working group around dissemination of materials. So we've developed an infographic. We've developed four fact sheets so far, a discussion paper, another document on privatization. And so we're trying to popularize some of those so that we can bring them to events. We're trying to make some of them social media friendly so we can distribute them that way. And so there's a group that looks after that. So people are sharing the load of the work and they're all feeling that they contribute. When we have our town hall meetings, we always have two or three speakers first and then we open it up to the public. And so we've been mixing and matching who those people are. Maybe it's someone from the women's community. It might be someone from the seniors community. It might be someone from the students. We try and engage someone locally as well. So we're having one, for example, in September in Grand Falls, where we know the mayor will speak. We know that the representative of the Status of Women's Council for that area will speak. We'll have a student speak and a small business person from the area so that we blend kind of the provincial overview, the expertise of our research, and the stories from the locals themselves. We had a rally not that long ago in Bonavista at the hospital. It was organized by the union that represents the public sector workers in the hospital, and they had closed the x-ray machine for any time after 4 p.m. You couldn't get an x-ray there. And the hospital, the neighboring hospital, which was 60 or 70 kilometers away, that was also closed. So if somebody needed an x-ray after 5 p.m., they would have to go to a hospital, which was probably two hours away. They also have canceled snow clearing after certain hours of the day. The roads are in terrible conditions. So there's all kinds of reasons for people in rural Newfoundland and Labrador to feel that this budget has hurt them. There was a motorcycle accident on the highway close to this hospital, and the father of the young man who was in the accident told a story at this rally about all the things. Not only could his son not get an x-ray, but they didn't know if he had internal bleeding or not, and that, you know they had to get an ambulance to take him to the hospital, which is two hours away, on roads that were really bumpy that could have hurt him if he was bleeding internally. And, and it really showed the impact to the communities about this. These are the stories that the media pick up on. These are the stories that are doing a lot more work, have a lot more impact, I think, on the public than even the work we're doing. It's safe to say, I don't know if the coalition has to do a whole lot to keep people together because the budget has touched the lives of so many people. Yeah, I agree that people don't seem apathetic at all. Like when we go out and we do our rallies or we do our information, people are already very informed and they're already very concerned. It makes it so much easier to get them on board with us, to get them to come out to our events, to support us outside the coalition. What's coming up for the Common Front? Well, in the short term, we're putting together a vision paper, a discussion paper of sorts, and we're hoping to hold a series of roundtables with stakeholder groups, for want of a better word, and then continue our town hall meetings, but bring that discussion paper to our town hall meetings to hear from local people across the province. 
And from that, in the early fall, we'll be putting together a document that we will again present to government. And instead of saying, here's the options of things that we know will work, it'll actually be somewhat of an alternate budget where it'll say, this is what we expect, and this is how you can do it, and we know you can afford it this way. Not that it'll be costed out to the cent, but it will make sense. It will be a sensible document that can work, in our opinion, about what the economy should look like. We expect a second budget to come out in the fall. They haven't said when. And I guess judging by the outcome of that, we'll either be celebrating a victory or quite possibly pushing back some more, stepping up our campaign. In the long term, I guess if this government is not going to realize that it has an obligation to look after all of its citizens, then we'll continue to remind them of that, and it will become a big P political campaign leading up to the election in a couple of years. I know the public sector unions haven't heard from government yet about bargaining, even though it's long overdue, so I suspect that's yet to come. They have hired a law firm which is known to support long strikes by their uh, anti-union tactics. They're the toughest law firm by reputation around that, so that's not sounding very positive. So I think the public sector unions are gearing up for that. There's also a very visible move towards sneaking in privatization of public services around long-term care, perhaps motor vehicle registration. There's been some discussion around some of the other services, education somewhat, roads and public infrastructure. So we're keeping a really close eye on that. As that proceeds, or if that proceeds, we'll be obviously pushing back quite strongly around privatization. I know that for the first budget, there were no cuts to the College of the North Atlantic, which is the only publicly funded college in the province with numerous campuses. The second budget is proposed to bring cuts to the College of the North Atlantic, and we could potentially see these manifesting campus closures, specifically in rural areas. And the closures in rural areas means less access to the skills people need to contribute to their communities, and these areas are going to suffer greatly. So the students are going to be working to bring this issue forward. For us, we'll be looking at supporting the work of the Common Front, both financially and through whatever personnel we can. But from our own point of view, we'll be continuing on the campaign that we'll be looking at the effects of an austerity budget on the classroom. Just because summer has come and gone, the changes that have been brought forward in the classroom are still there, and they're going to have a less than desirable effect on outcomes and on the education of students. So a lot of the work we'll be doing will be in conjunction where we're asked to and also pursuing our own issues. What I would hope to see is a sort of a, a chorus, a chorus of voices demanding change in the better future. It's good that there's still a group coordinating. There's always the risk or always the fear that the budget comes down in the spring, summer comes, people forget about it, and then life goes on as normal or the new normal. And the one positive thing I find about having a group like the Common Front is that there's a group dedicated to keeping the issue alive but also offering a vision for the province that this government needs to adopt. You have been listening to my interview with Mary Shortle, Jim Din, and Sarah Langer of Common Front NL, a broad-based coalition in Newfoundland and Labrador that has come together to fight their provincial government's austerity agenda. To learn more about their work, go to wearenl.ca. That's w-e-a-r-e-n-l dot c-a.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.